Heavenly Father, as we come to you, the one who is altogether glorious, altogether wonderful and lovely, Father, we pray that you would help us to see something of that to you, uh, something of that in you today from your word. Father, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to see and to understand your glory, to better come to know you, to better love you, and to better serve you. Father, we pray that in every way, Lord, that Christ would be lifted up today and that he would draw all men to himself. Father, we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. When you have that, put your finger there and then flip over a couple chapters to Exodus 24. We're going to read everything in between your fingers. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like Israel would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, Last week we looked at the beginning of the Bible's story in Genesis. Now at the end of that book, we saw that God had by then established His covenant with Abraham. He would already begun fulfilling those covenantal promises. Baron, Sarah, and Abraham had been blessed with a son, who in turn had a son, who in turn had twelve sons. And from those twelve sons, a large family came into existence. The covenant people of God being built by the grace of God. And yet, that large family's existence came into, uh, came to be threatened by a famine in their homeland. And yet, through an amazing series of uh, providential workings by God, one of those sons, Joseph, uh, who went from favorite son to slave to the very prime minister of Egypt, was put into place by God there so that he might be able to uh, protect the people of God, to provide them food and a place to live. This morning we pick up the story in Exodus, and we see that things have changed dramatically from the end of Genesis. At the end of that book, Israel numbered about 70 uh, people, and now they number about 2 million people at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Furthermore, when we left the story at the end of Genesis, all of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself, knew of Joseph and, the, and that they had benefited from his God-given wisdom uh, in being able to foresee the famine that was to come and to stock food in its preparation. But then as Exodus begins, we read now, there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Years have gone by and now any memory of who Joseph was or how he had literally saved not only his family but also Egypt itself had long passed out of memory. And now this new king was fearful of the Israelites because they were so large in number would, would take over the land for themselves. And so he began to enslave them. And then more than that, he began to systematically halt their growth by instructing that all of the firstborn sons be killed. And once again, we see the promises that God made to Abraham being thwarted, being threatened by sinful humanity. And it was important that those promises be fulfilled, not only that God's character be preserved and be shown to be as glorious as it was, but because it was through His promises to Abraham, remember, that all of the world be blessed. Not just Israel, but through Israel, all of the world, because from Israel came the Christ. And so today we want to understand how God fulfilled His promises to Abraham and rescued His people Israel by redeeming them from their slavery in Egypt. And we'll begin reading in uh, chapter 19, and when we get to the end of verse 9, we'll flip over and look at chapter 24. So I encourage you to follow along as we read. 
On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And then he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of the Lord. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. May God bless the reading of his word. From this passage, we, we gain a glimpse of the entire book of Exodus. Here we see what God has done in redeeming Israel, why He has redeemed them, and how they are to respond to that redemption. And those are the things that we want to see this morning. And in seeing those things, we also want to more clearly see God's plan to save a people for Himself, not just Israel, but a plan to save people from all the nations, a plan rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so from this passage, from the entire book of Exodus, we want to see three things. First, there is a redemption to remember. There is a redemption to remember. Moses is told by God in verse 4 of chapter 19, 
say to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. At the beginning, again, of Exodus, the people of God are threatened. They are enslaved. The firstborn are being killed off. And yet God providentially worked the life, or rather providentially worked to save the life of one very specific Israelite child named Moses. He was saved from being killed and was even raised in Pharaoh's court. But when he became an adult, he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and Moses killed him for it. He hid the body thinking his crime would not be discovered, and yet he found out it was. And everybody seemed to know that he had murdered this Egyptian, and so he fled Egypt out into the wilderness to save his own life. And on his journey away from Egypt, Moses joined a group of shepherds in Midian. And it was there in Midian that Moses began to settle down. He married and lived a new life as a shepherd. But God was not done with him yet. And one day as he was in the midst of tending his flock, he saw, as it were, up on a mountain, a bush that appeared to be on fire, but was not burned up. And he said, I've got to go see what this is. This is not something you see every day. What's going on here? So he goes up and what he sees is not a bush that is on fire, but rather a flaming fire in the midst of the bush. And in fact, what it was, was the glory of God itself appearing before Moses. And through that flaming fire of glory, Moses was called to be the deliverer of his own people, a deliverer for the people of Israel out of Egypt. Yet Moses was hesitant. He didn't want to go. He said, you got the wrong guy, Lord. I'm not the guy to go. And he starts to make excuses, and the Lord says, you will go for me, and you will be my deliverer. Well, you have to understand that at this point, the people of Israel have so neglected the worship of the one true God, they don't even know his name anymore. They don't even know, Moses doesn't even know which God it is that's calling him to go and to be his spokesman and to call Israel out of Egypt. And so he says, who should I say? Who should I say is going? We're told, Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and they say, the God, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God revealed his covenant name to Moses, I am, or in the Hebrew we pronounce it Yahweh. It's a name that speaks to God's self-existence, the fact that he needs no one else for his being or his power. And yet it also speaks of his resolve to reveal his character by keeping his promises. That's why he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who called Abraham out of paganism to worship me. I am the God who called him out of that pit of sin and promised to bless him and to bless all the nations through him. And I continue to fulfill that promise through Isaac and through Jacob, your, your very father. And therefore, I will fulfill those promises to you. And when the Lord called Moses to be the deliverer for the people, he promised to be with him and to do miraculous signs through him so that Pharaoh would let Israel go. The Lord told Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And that's exactly what God did. Moses told Pharaoh that the God of Israel wanted his people freed. And when he refused, the Lord sent plagues upon Egypt to break the will of Pharaoh. God began by attacking the source of all life in the land, the Nile River turning it to blood, 
Pharaoh saw this. He understood it to be a sign from God, and yet he refused to yield. And so God continued with another plague of frogs throughout the land. Pharaoh still refused yet, and so God sent plagues of gnats, flies, the killing of livestock, boils all over the people, hail, locusts, locust, and darkness for three days. Can you imagine? We had rain for three days, and I thought it was bad. Can you imagine darkness? Since it was so dark, people didn't want to get out of bed. They just laid around and said, what are we going to do? We're going to pop into peel and we're just going to stay in the bed. Now, some will try and argue for naturalistic causes of all these things. They'll try to diminish the supernatural element and say, well, you know, maybe God kind of got things going a little bit. But, you know, the, the Red Sea might actually be the, 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 uh, the, the Reed Sea, and, and there could have been some, uh, some volcanic activity, and so lava got in the Nile, and it started this chain reaction, all these things. Well, the Bible doesn't give us that option. Because while it says the plague went over all of Egypt, it also says that the people of God, Israel, they were preserved through all of these things. So when boils infested every single person in Egypt, it was only the Egyptians who had the boils and not the people of God, Israel. When darkness was over all the land of Egypt for three days, guess where there was still light? The places where the people of God were living. We can't say it was just some naturalistic thing that got Pharaoh's attention. No, it was very much the power of God. And it was not random choices. God, you say, well, why was it frogs? Why was it flies? Why was it gnats? These were all things that the Egyptians held up as gods and worshipped. They were, they were a direct attacks by God on the false gods of the Egyptians. And so one by one he begins to take out until finally Ra, the sun god, supposedly the most powerful of all, and saying, darkness. What is God saying? He's saying, who is the one true God? It's me. And some of these other, some of these other false gods that you worship, it is me. I am the Lord. One by one, the Lord displayed his power through these plagues. And yet Pharaoh hardened his heart still and refused to let Israel go. So God promised a final devastating plague, the death of the firstborn through all of Egypt. From the cattle in the field to the slave girl in the kitchen to the king on his throne, all the firstborn would die. And yet again, God provided an escape for his people Israel. God instructed them to take a lamb for each household, to kill it, to eat it, but then also to take its blood and to smear it, to sprinkle it across the two doorposts on either side of the door and across the top on the lentil of the door. This was to be a sign of their faith that God would deliver them, that He would save them and pass over them as He brought judgment on the rest of Egypt. If their homes were covered by the shed blood of the Lamb, then Israel would be saved from God's wrath. What God promised came to pass. Well, the firstborn of all of Egypt was killed. Israel's firstborn was spared. Israel's, uh, rather, Pharaoh's will was finally broken, and he ordered Israel to leave Egypt. Their slavery was over. From bondage, they were set free. And they began the long journey to the land that God had long ago promised to give them through his promise to Abraham. Even then, though, the danger wasn't over. We're told that Pharaoh's heart was even more hardened after Israel had left, and he sent his army to pursue them and to kill them. And he chased them all the way up to the Red Sea, where he thought that Israel had been cornered and had nowhere to run. And yet God again revealed his mighty power. Through Moses, God parted the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk across on dry land. And Egypt 
very quickly saw that the way of escape for Israel became the way of judgment for them. For when the army tried to pursue, Moses put his hands back together and the waters came crashing in, destroying the army of Pharaoh. God saved Israel from Egypt just as he has promised that he would do to his father Abraham. And this act of salvation would forever define Israel as a people. Whenever the Lord would, would, would give instruction to Israel, whenever he would want to call them to obey, to call them to do something, he would say, remember, I am the Lord God who saved you out of Egypt. Remember, I am the Lord God who brought deliverance for you out of Egypt. Remember, I am the Lord who saved you. And so even in this passage now, as he is beginning to make the covenant with Israel, he tells Moses to say to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, now that I have saved you, now that I have redeemed you, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There is a redemption to be remembered, and now there is a covenant to be kept. There is a covenant to be kept. After leaving Egypt, the people traveled to the land of Canaan, and yet even then we get a glimpse of what their life is going to be like. They've just been redeemed. In the beginning of the, in the, beginning of the book of Exodus, they are calling out, calling out to any god, save us from this oppression from Egypt. And God does just that. And in fact, He doesn't just save them. He saves them dramatically. He saves them with great blessing because He says, as you're leaving, ask the Egyptians for their gold. And they're saying, what? Ask the Egyptians for their So they're leaving. They're leaving Egypt. He says, hey, give us your gold. Sure, here, take it. Just get out of here. We don't want any more judgment. So they're walking out, gold rings and fancy things. They're saying, woohoo, look at us. We've been delivered. It's great. And guess what? The first sign of difficulty, they start grumbling. Got this water out of the well, but the water doesn't taste very good. Oh, let's just go back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? They're killing off your kids. And the water is, is, is worse off than that? We, we, don't have any, we don't have anything to eat, God. We better go back to, to Egypt. What? Well, it's a good thing I wasn't God, because I would have said, all right, we're done. I'm getting, I'm getting somebody else. This is, this is ridiculous. But God didn't do that. He was faithful to His promise. He showed them how to get sweet water. He, showed, he provided for them quail in this, this bread that wouldn't spoil called manna that literally was on the ground when they woke up in the morning. He even protects them from an attack by the Amalekites. Each time they start to grumble, God shows Himself to be a loving, caring, protecting God. In the third month after leaving Egypt, the people finally arrive at their destination, Mount Sinai. And it is here at Sinai, it is here that outside of the incarnation of Christ, the most fundamental, the most glorious, the most dramatic, the most important meeting between God and man takes place. It is here that God comes down on the mountain and gives His law to His people and makes a covenant with them. When they first reach the mountain in chapter 19, God has to warn them not to touch the mountain. They've not yet been purified through the shedding of blood. And therefore, if they come too close to His holy presence, He will break out in His holiness, He tells Moses, and wipe them out as a people, even His covenant people. That's how holy and glorious the Lord is. And yet they are so excited to finally be here. And you get the impression that they're kind of, you know, it, it, 
It's like at that, it's like at, like at a concert or at a football game or something. They haven't quite opened the doors yet. And that the crowd begins to surge and kind of press in. And you're at the front of the line saying, come on, come on, back up. Give, give us some room here. Give us room. The people are literally coming, crowding into the mountain. They're so excited to be there when God comes down. And yet he does come down. He comes down in glory with peals of lightning and thunders and flashes of light. And he speaks to them with his own voice, the ten words, the ten commandments of his law. And then suddenly the people's attitude changes. At the end of chapter 20, when God has finished giving the law, the Ten Commandments, we read, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet that was His voice and the smoke, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were were first crowded. Let's get to God, let's get to God. And then God reveals Himself. And they say, whoa, man. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. It's too holy for us. Moses, you go up there and you hear all that Moses has to say. If, if we get any closer, we're going to die. We're going to die. They, they turn and they run when they hear the voice of God. They are filled with awe and dread at His presence. Moses stays. He stays and God gives the people what is called the Book of the Covenant. It is the application and illustration of how the Ten Commandments are to be lived out practically in their life. It's chapters 21, 22, and 23. This giving of the law was a call for the people to live lives of holiness. Where have the people lived for the last couple hundred years? Egypt. What does that mean? They've come to worship the Egyptian gods. They've come to live like the Egyptians. And God says, no more. Just as I am holy, and you recall with, with, you recoil with dread and terror at the sight of my holiness, so I am calling you now to be a holy people. You're going to look different from every other people in the world, from the people you've left behind in Egypt, and from the people that you're going to encounter in Canaan. If you keep my law, keep my law, and you will be distinct and separate from all the other nations. You will be my people And Moses confirms this in chapter 33. He's talking to the Lord. And he speaks of Israel and he says, We are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Why? Why? Because God had called them out of Egypt and He had said, Live by my law that your lives will resemble something of my own holiness. Once the giving of the law in the book of the covenant is complete, we come to chapter 24 where we read, Because the people had backed away from God in terror when He first came and spoke at Sinai, He tells Moses to call the people back to the mountain so that the covenant ceremony can take place. What we see in the covenant ceremony at Sinai is very much like the much more common covenant ceremony of marriage where two people pledge their lives together with one another. How many of you have ever ever attended a marriage ceremony or have participated in a marriage ceremony? Probably, Probably everybody here, right? And you'll know that, that there, are, there are a couple things that, that take place. And it's, it's kind of interesting, the first time doing marriage counseling, you sit down with a couple and they're like, uh, you know, I said, well, what do, you, what, do you have any thoughts about how the service is going to run? Well, we just want a traditional service. And they're shocked because they forget so quickly there's actually two sets of vows that, are t- that take place within the typical marriage ceremony. At first, you just the, 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 the minister, uh, he comes and he says, basically, what are you here to do today? Do you intend to take this woman as your wife? Do you intend to take this man as your wife? Are you coming to actually be married? And they say, yes. And the minister says, great. We can continue on with the service. And hopefully, if he's worth, 
in his salt, he actually opens the Bible and tells something about what marriage is from that, and not just, you know, some pop psychology magazine. This is what God says marriage is to be. And then after that, what do they do? Then he says, where are the rings? And then you very specifically pledge your allegiance. You pledge your unending covenant love to that spouse that stands before you. And then he says, man and wife. It's not enough just to say, oh yeah, we're going to get married. Man and wife. No, 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 no. First, there's the promise. First, there's the pledge. That's exactly what we see going on here. The Israelites declare their intent to enter the covenant in verse 3. The people say, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And after writing down the law, we're told Moses then reads the law in the hearing of the people. Okay, you want to be God's people. You're going to do all that he says. Now, here is what he says you will do. Here's what it means to live as the covenant people. And so, after the reading, again, they take their vows, as it were, and they say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient, verse 7. But notice how the covenant is ratified in verse 5. It's with the shedding of blood that the covenant is ratified. There are no Levites yet, there is no priest, and so Moses sent for young men out of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and he put it in the basins. And half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The people were redeemed from Egypt with the shedding of blood through the Passover lamb. And here they enter into covenant with God by the shedding of blood. Much later... The author of Hebrews makes clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's, that's the reason that there is the shedding of blood here. Because that's the thing, the very thing, the people of God so desperately need. You know, frankly, it would be great if the story ended right here. It would be great if this was the ending of the book of Exodus. The law has been given. The Lord has come down and met His people in glory. They have promised to do all that the Lord has asked. But sadly, it doesn't end here. And in a very, very short while, the people will immediately break the covenant that they've just made with God. God calls Moses back up to the mountain to again receive instructions on how to worship Him, how to construct a tabernacle, how to go about giving sacrifices in that tabernacle as an act of worship to God to maintain the covenant. But it takes longer than the people think. And they say to themselves, what's happened to Moses? Must be dead. Aaron, make us an idol. Make us a golden calf that we can worship the Lord our God. How long was Moses up there? A year? Months? Several months? Forty days. It only took forty days, less than forty days for the people to say, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let's just do our own thing. Let's just worship God the way that we learned to worship God in Egypt. Make us a golden calf. Isn't it ironic? At the very moment, the very moment that God is telling Moses, here's the tabernacle. Here's how you maintain holiness. A barrier of separation between the people and me that I might dwell in your presence. Here's how you worship me through offerings and sacrifice. The people are trying to do it their own way. And they wind up sinning. They wind up breaking the very commandments they've just pledged they would keep forever. Their sins need to be atoned for that they can be made 
that they could remain right with God. They've already betrayed their covenant vows, and this is why the covenant was ratified with blood. This is why the covenant would be maintained with blood. Part of the worship of God was the continual offering of sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now looking back, it may be easy to dog the Israelites. It may be easy to, to say, you know, what a bunch of jokers. What were they thinking? But in the end, we're no different than them. They were born sinful, and we're born sinful. And we enter into this new covenant in Christ through His shed blood that atones for all of our sins once for all perfectly. And yet, how often do we say, I will do all that you ask, Lord. And we go to bed having sinned grievously that day. We repent that night and say, God, I'm so sorry for that sin. I know it's offended you. And we're genuine in our repentance. But the next day we commit the same sin. You see, God knows people well. And rather than offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, He provided for Israel what He has also provided perfectly for us, the one true and living sacrifice in Christ that atones for all of our sins. And so when we go to God and ask forgiveness, it's not a, it's not a, a, a full-out cleansing that achieves salvation over and over again. Frankly, it's coming to assuage us of our guilt and to cause us to want to fellowship with God again. To not recoil back having heard His holy voice at the cross, but going and saying, God, we want fellowship again. We know that we have sinned. This brings us to the last point that we see. There is a redemption to remember, there is a covenant to be kept, and there is a glory to behold. From the very beginning of chapter 24, we are told the purpose of this covenant ceremony. The Lord then said to Moses, Come up to the Lord you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and worship. This covenant ceremony is at its heart a a worship service. In the midst of worshiping the Lord, they were to see His glory. Verse 15 says, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. In the midst of all God's people seeing His glory on the mountain, some were allowed a more intimate, a more intense glimpse of God's glory. We're told that some were called out from among the people to act as intercessors before the Lord. It was Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders who were, who were called in to come closer to the mountain and get this greater glimpse of the glory of the Lord. With Moses only... As, as the single representative, the mediator, as it were, between God and Israel being allowed to actually ascend the mountain up into the glory of the Lord. The Bible says that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Can you imagine that experience? It's interesting that when Moses recalls it, he doesn't say what the Lord looks like. He tells us what is under his feet. And I cannot help but think that if we truly glimpse the glory of God, it is not into the face of God that we look. It's at the ground as we kneel before him and worship 
and honor the one who deserves it. And yet, and yet they eat before him. Two sacrifices have been offered. There's a sacrifice of atonement that has been offered, and then we're told there is a sacrifice of fellowship that has been offered. Keeping the people at bay, only allowing so many to come up, then only allowing Moses to go up. God is again emphasizing, I am a holy God. You don't just come and worship me however you want. There are parameters, and I set them. And at the same time, there is the grace of not only allowing those to come up, but to eat and fellowship in His presence. What a glory to behold that day. But the people of Israel were not the only ones who were supposed to see the glory of the Lord. Certainly they beheld it in a unique way, but Moses also says that God's very redemption of of Israel was supposed to be a, a display of God's glory to all the nations. You know, what's interesting is that that's the one thing that's left out in all the Hollywood versions of the Exodus. If you're as old as me or older, you probably grew up watching Charlton Heston stand before Yul Brenner saying, let my people go, right? And, it, and I tell you, Heston looks good for a guy who's supposed to be 80 in that movie, doesn't he? You know, I mean, that's how old Mo- Moses was. He was 80 years old. He went and stood before, before Pharaoh. And yet, if you're, if you're younger, if you're younger than me, if you're a lot younger, if you're a kid here, then you probably heard the voice of Val Kilmer say through an animated Moses, let my people go, in the DreamWorks movie that came out a couple of years ago. And those movies basically get the story right. They, they tweak some things to make the fill in the gaps that we don't have, and frankly, that's all wrong. <laughs> I mean, even, even, even just from our best guess, we know that that's wrong. But for the most part, they, they get the events right that are in the Bible, but they completely miss the meaning of those events. I mean, they just completely miss it. The movies lay the emphasis on the enslaved, mistreated people being set free. The story of Exodus becomes a morality tale about the mistreatment of people and the need for justice. But the Bible says that's not what the Exodus is about. The Lord Himself says it is about displaying His glory to the world. The redeeming of Israel was not so much an act of kindness to Israel. It was that. But it was primarily the fulfillment of His promises to Abraham, whereby He was shown to be a faithful God, a powerful God. Listen to, what, listen to what the Lord says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why not just wipe out the Egyptians? Why go through all these plagues? Why go through all this? Because God says, you need to behold my power. You need to behold my power. In Exodus 14.4, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. Exodus 15.11, after having been delivered by death from the parting sea, Moses himself sings out in praise of God. Never let it be said that singing is not manly. King David, who slaughtered how many Philistines? Wrote most of the Psalms. Moses himself, a great man and leader, sings out to the Lord, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? What was the point of the Exodus? The point of the Exodus was not only for Israel, but for the entire world to see the glory of God in His power and superiority over all powers known to mankind. Any false little God 
The Lord says, I crush them under my feet. They are nothing before me. I alone am the Lord. I alone am the Almighty. Therefore, if they had eyes to see, they would be forced to stand back and say, He is the Lord, and there is no other like Him. Even today, as we, through the testimony of Moses, recount and see these events, we too should be able to behold the glory of God, and in some ways, an even greater way. For in the book of Exodus, we see God redeeming a people for His glory. We see the Lord establishing a covenant with them, giving them a law as a guide for their lives, along with the tabernacle, and sacrifices that a holy God might have fellowship with sinful people. And we know all of that served its purpose and its time, and was a blessing to Israel. But today, today we stand on the other side of an even greater act of redemption that God has done to reveal His glory. We stand on this side of the cross where Jesus Christ, the great I Am taking on flesh, came to redeem sinners by the offering of His own life. And the Bible is clear that all of that law, all of those sacrifices, all pointed to Christ. They were a foreshadowing of what He would do to save sinners, not just from Israel, but from every people, tribe, language, and nation. And just as the Passover lamb covered Israel from God's judgment of all of Egypt, so the offering is Christ. The offering of Christ as our Passover causes God to pass over us in judgment for our sins. Just as the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God among sinful men, so now Christ has come by His own lips, by His own admission. I am the true tabernacle of God. In John chapter 1, the word dwelt. The The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. In Greek, guess what the word is? Tabernacle. The Word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the very embodiment of God's presence in His people. If you want to commune with God, you do it through Christ. Just as the glory of the Lord came down upon the mountain, so we have seen, John says, the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. In every way, the gracious blessings that were given to Israel have come now in an even greater way to all those who would look to God in faith through Christ. All who would look to Him believing He is the one true and final atoning sacrifice for sins will not see God's wrath on that final day. But will be forgiven and given the inheritance of eternal life. For all those that do believe this morning, we stand like those Israelites desiring to say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. But we know like Israel, we will sin. But what God promises is this. To those who are weak, He gives more grace. Isn't that what James says? He gives more grace. And so we stand this morning, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, not desiring obedience to earn or pay back God, but to bring Him glory with our lives the nations might see and also believe. And we say, God, I know I can't do this in my own strength. Give me the grace that You promise that I might live a holy life before You. And guess what? Here's the amazing thing. When we try and do it on our own strength, who gets the glory? Us. When we call out for God's grace and say, help me to live the way you call me to live, and He does it, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. May He be glorified today in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your redeeming work of Your people Israel. And Father, we stand now as the new Israel, Paul says, made up of Jews and Gentiles together, one new humanity in Christ. 
Father, we rejoice that you still save people by your grace. You still call a special people out for yourself from among all the peoples on the earth. Father, we pray that you would even be doing that now, both today in the service of the proclamation of your word and through the word of your servants as we go out this week proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray.